So make sure your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 8. It's a longer passage, it's a narrative passage, and um, it's always helpful to have the, the bulk of that open before you. <clears throat> we are back in our series in, in Acts, and I'm so excited to be there as a preacher, and I trust and pray that God will move us and advance us as a church in obedience to Him and worship of Him. Don't forget also, I <clears throat> enlisted my technical genius and I put my phone number on the board there. And I'd love to do another question and answer period at the end. Again, there's no pressure to, but um, if you want to text my phone a question, um, then I'd be happy to take a few minutes at the end of the sermon or into the, uh, or into the service in general so that we have a bit more time to reflect. But that's open to you. Um, I just want to be as interactive as possible and as helpful as possible if something is stirred in you and you just want to deal with it right now, that's a great way to do that. So we're learning a little bit more about Samaria this morning. In, the, in the, one of the Gospels, we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, the Samaritans were looked down on by the Jews because they weren't Jews. They weren't purebred um, biological Jews. And that's why Jesus used the Samaritan to make the point to a Jewish audience that it is not where you came from, but it is how you live according to God that you are um, evaluated. And that was shocking to them because they thought, how could God love a Samaritan? How could a Samaritan do the right thing before God? Uh, this is the first time the gospel is reaching beyond Jewish geographical limits. This is the first time that we're seeing the gospel go beyond Jerusalem. There was a great persecution that took place in our text last week, right? The, the first uh, public air preacher that was killed, his name was Stephen. And he was a deacon in the church when the widows were not being fed properly. He was commissioned to help serve tables. But he also, were, we, we heard that those deacons were full of the spirit. So they were not just bussing tables, but they were serving the body of Christ in the name of Christ, full of the Holy Spirit. And so it was not a far jump to preach from there and to declare the goodness of God. And so he was, he en enraged the Jewish leaders, the high priest and his family in particular, who were also active in killing Christ. When Christ confronted them, they called him a blasphemer and demanded that he be killed. So these are the same people that killed Christ or demanded that he be killed are now going after his servants. And Jesus also warned about this, right? He said, if they hated me first, of course they will hate you. So the church is witnessing this first um, lashing out in violence. And so this city, Samaria, is, is a place where some of these people, when they fled Jerusalem for the persecution, they landed in the regions of Samaria. And remember Jesus in the Great Commission said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is fulfilling Christ's prophecy, Christ's declaration over them, that they would witness there. And they just saw a, a preacher get killed for preaching. And what do they do? They go on preaching the gospel because they were commissioned by Christ to do so. And so they go into Samaria, and this town Samaria is interesting. Uh, they had seen demons cast out. They had seen the sick healed and at the in verse 8 it says there was much joy in the city they were seeing the works of god they were seeing as christ performed 
signs of the beginning of the kingdom, that the kingdom was beginning to come, that the, these were signs of Christ's redeeming of creation. Jesus acknowledged, and the Gospel of John acknowledged over and over again, that signs were of no eternal value per se, because the signs were pointing to an eternal reality. Like when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, and 5,000 people were fed. That was great, but they actually came back the next day hungry. And Jesus used that hunger in their bellies to teach them, I am the bread of life. And you're going to come to me, and you're never going to be spiritually hungry again. And so the signs always pointed to the eternal reality of Christ, which is why, even in the book of Acts, we do not become obsessed with and hung up on signs the miraculous, because even Christ would diminish the miraculous in favor of the manifestation of himself. So that's important to keep in mind when we're looking through the book of Acts. But the church was, or the the town of Samaria was rejoicing. Of course they were, because demon-possessed people were being set free and the the, the sick were being healed. And Philip was making clear that it was the name of Jesus Christ coming into the darkness, which was uh, bringing about this transformation and they, uh, we also learn more about this city that they, they took a lot of joy in these public demonstrations. This was almost sort of part of the culture of the city. They had a culture of, collect, of a collective appetite for signs and prominent figures. We kind of learn that in the next verses. And so there was much joy in the city. We don't necessarily know what that means. We don't necessarily know that that means saving faith or the transformation of the gospel, because we learn in these next verses that Samaria actually loved signs and wonders wherever they came from. They loved a prominent figure who could whip up the crowds and entertain them. They had a local witch doctor whose name was Simon. And this fellow Simon essentially led a cult. He demonstrated such power and likely charisma that he literally had a cult following from the youngest to the oldest. This was a town-wide miracle man in a way. He had control over, the word magic is used in in our text, and that's to let us know that this is occult magic. This is satanic power. This is harnessing the spiritual realm of darkness in order to impress people, to do amazing Things And now, even last night on the stage here, there was a, an illusionist. And I'm so thankful they call themselves illusionists because there's no claim to demonic power. You know, that's, that's a form of entertainment. Um, but certainly, I was in Perth a couple weeks ago and a, a, a new business was being set up and the sandwich board went out and it was... Um, uh, I can't remember what was on it. It was... A, she, she essentially called herself a witch who could read people's futures using... Um, the magic arts and these sort of, I suppose a little bit naive sort of passers by, you know, in this Perth, if you know Perth too, it's kind of like they looked at, Oh, well, that's lovely. Good luck. Right. It's like, I mean, you're, it just, you don't know what to make of it. People are almost so spiritually um, muted that they don't even know what to make of somebody who claims to have demonic power. It's just like, Oh, a new business. That's so neat. Um, and, but in this culture, this was like known. This man would harness satanic power in order to impress the crowds, and he loved it. He thrived on this kind of um, 
following. He thrived on this kind of identity. He was, I believe, a very charismatic and um, public figure. He loved the public spotlight, this guy Simon. And so when Philip comes in, he is doing signs and wonders, sort of like Simon. Philip comes in and, and he's casting out demons and he's healing the sick, but in the name of Jesus Christ. It almost reminds us of when Moses went to Pharaoh and his staff turned into a snake and the other magicians were like, we can do that too. So they make their staffs a snake and then God's snake goes and eats the other snakes. Like you don't get to challenge God's power or or, or at least you're welcome to, but God's power is going to be shown to be superior and to be for for the force of good, right? God's power is healing the sick and casting out demons. Jesus said when, when he cast out demons, they said, oh, he cast out demons by the power of Be- Beelzebub, Satan. And Jesus said, you're crazy. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's a kingdom divided that will fall. When I cast out demons, it is my kingdom destroying the kingdom of Satan. Satan's kingdom is crumbling at the feet of Jesus. And so... Philip comes in and, and shows God's power. And there's this, there's this conflict going on in Samaria of these two kingdoms literally battling it out. He had a title even. They called him, it's kind of an interesting title. They could, really, they could really work on marketing, but this man is the power of the God that is called great. You could shorten that a little bit and put it on a poster and you might be able to sell some tickets. But Maybe that wasn't their strength, but he had a title. He had a following and he thrived on and thirsted for more of this, this fellow Simon. Now here's the context is that again, as I said, this is the first time the gospel is reaching beyond Jerusalem, going beyond the Jewish um, breeding grounds of the gospel where, where Christ, Christ never traveled you know, far outside of that, that region of Galilee and around the lake there. I mean, this didn't, the gospel didn't go out until the disciples went out. Until the church went out. Jesus didn't go and preach to the ends of the earth. But what what we recognize here is that when the gospel goes beyond, when the gospel goes out to new territory, there are challenges and cultures that have very specific idols and strongholds that the gospel confronts. And the gospel, when it meets those, it displaces and replaces them with the genuine kingdom of God, with belief, repentance, conversion, and renewal. I love those words all kind of sandwiched together because you have the transformation of the, individu- of the individual. You have belief in their heart. Then you have repentance turning away from their sin. Then you, ha- you have conversion, so they've been brought out of their old life and into their new. And then you have renewal, the life that is continually being transformed. So I have three headings here. We have magic and the counterfeit kingdom. We have gospel advance and renewal. And then we have gospel purity on display. And I've just titled this message The Irresistible Gospel because we see it come in contact with some of the darkest um, things on earth, literally the power of Satan, and it, and it is transformative. And uh, it's not without challenge, but the gospel is able to meet and overcome those challenges. Magic in the counterfeit kingdom. This is just verses 9 and 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Uh, this phrase, but there was a man, is in contrast to the verse that says there, is, there was much joy in the city. There was much joy in the city, but there was a man. 
And so again, the church is not, was not naive about, nor were the apostles naive about the opposition that they would face as Christians as the mission of the gospel would advance. But there was a man, but there was a city council, but there was a fill in the blank. There was always opposition to the gospel. It's not an excuse not to live according to the word of God or not to advance the mission or not to preach the gospel, but there was a man. The reason is because the world is not neutral. The world is not out there as a blank canvas that we just simply lay the gospel over top. The world, at work in the world, wherever the gospel has not taken hold and transformed a people, there is some other form of worship going on. There is some other form of a kingdom standing. There is some other expression of deity at work everywhere. Wherever the gospel has not taken hold, where Christ has not been recognized as king, there is something that stands in its way and in its place. And that, that something will not go away quietly, which is why I believe that the work of missionaries, um, church, church planting in very many aspects, is so laden with spiritual warfare. I'm not one to dwell on the, you know, the, the, the demonic confrontations that take place, but I will tell you I've experienced the abnormal oppression and difficulties of something like church planting over and against going and studying at Bible college or being hired by a church which has already staked out a ground in the culture. There is opposition wherever the gospel is meeting new territory. And so that's why we need to particularly pray for gospel workers, missionaries, uh, small churches. I'm going to tell you about one at the end of the service. But those kingdoms will not let go quietly. They will not just hand over the keys to the world. Satan has been at work for generations in the world, blinding the nations, and Christ on the cross bound Satan and gained all authority, which is why the gospel has confidence to go and see transformation but nonetheless here we have magic being worshiped and adored and praised in this town of samaria magic had actually been outlawed by god had been prohibited by god in the old testament occultism spiritism um, conjuring up spirits all been condemned by god as as a practice totally immoral for his people He did not outlaw it because he said, oh, that's all fake. There's no such thing as spirits. He didn't outlaw it because it was fake or or unrealistic, but because by spiritism, by occultism, man seeks divine power and knowledge apart from God. Absolutely, you can do all kinds of things by the power of Satan. 100%. But what God says is that is wicked because God is is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is the one who enables, gives his spirit, and accomplishes his will through his divine power. And when man seeks um, occult or or magic-oriented power, he does it to say, I will be my own God. Uh, And if you look up the testimonies of people who used to be involved in spiritism or the occult, demons would love to do whatever the person wanted. They're there to serve. What can I help you do? You be your own God. You be full of your own power. And God says, this, is, this ought not to be. God says, I am your God. I am the Lord your God. I led you out of Egypt. 
I am the, good, the giver of the law. I am the one who leads you and protects you and provides for you. Why would you want power outside of God? It's only to raise self. And so this is why this magic is taking place. And it's, it's in opposition to the gospel. It's in opposition to the gospel. Every culture has, has some vision, has some expression of greatness has some expression of power, has some expression or example of security, entertainment, and leadership. Every culture has some model that they say, this is how society should look. The, the way we describe that is a kingdom. What is the kingdom like in Canada? What's the vision of the kingdom of the people of Canada? What's the vision of a kingdom in Iran? What does kingdom living look like when you're there? And everywhere, everywhere the gospel goes, the true kingdom is put on display. The true expression of leadership and power and security is put on display. The kingdom of God has Jesus Christ at the top and at the center of that kingdom. Jesus Christ displaces all authority and centers it on himself. Jesus Christ displaces all counterfeit forms of justice or or. Um, or, or man-centered expressions of, of those things. Jesus Christ says, I am the full expression of humanity and I am God in bodily form. And so the kingdom comes in and pr- places Christ at the center and which is why other forms of the kingdom must be displaced and, and broken up in favor of the true gospel, the true kingdom. We can see why um, Simon is at odds with the gospel because He declared himself to be somebody great. And so, again, we see here, he's obviously jealous of Philip. Philip comes in, he's doing these signs and wonders, and the town is rejoicing. And then Simon's going around saying, I'm somebody great. Do you see that in the text? There was a man in the the city. He amazed the people saying that he himself was somebody great. There's the reflexive pronoun there. He wasn't calling Philip great. He was calling himself great. This is, an, this is absolute antithetical to the gospel. This is anti-God for a man to stand up and say, look at my greatness. And the crowds even had a title for him. The crowds agreed with him and they said, he has the power of God that is called great. Why did they give him divine power? Because he demonstrated spiritual control an ability to manipulate his environment and to demonstrate that he had superhuman ability And they didn't know the name of the Lord God. So they called him God. You know, we wonder why our culture elevates people, elevates politicians, worships man, because they don't know the real God. This is the default position of mankind to find something tangible and to elevate it to the position of God. What is the church's job is to say, no, 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 no. We know the true God. We know the living God. Here he is. Worship him. Place your trust in him. Turn away from these temporal, shallow things. This is a city gripped by the appearance of of divine power. A city which collectively upheld and enabled this kind of behavior. This is a city in desperate need of the name of the true Lord. This is a city that desperately needs to enthrone the Lord Jesus Christ in order to put its worship right. So that's magic in the counterfeit kingdom and the need for Christ. Then we see gospel advance and renewal, 12 and 13. There's a parallel here. 
there's, there's a, two parallel phrases, but there was a man, but when they believed in verse 12, do you see that? But there was a man, there's a counterfeit kingdom, but when they believed in Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so there's a pair of contrasting buts here, meaning that the gospel goes out, meets the confrontation, meets the counterfeit kingdom, and totally overpowers it. But there was a man. So what? Because but when they believed, they were, they were transformed, they were baptized. And here's the reason why. Because when the counterfeit kingdom goes out, it gives us something to be entertained by, something to, to follow and, and maybe appreciate on a sensual level. But when the gospel goes out, it replaces slavery to sin and idolatry and gives you a Lord to believe in and a hope to hold on to. The gospel doesn't just say, come and look at our signs. Our signs are great too. Big deal. Jesus said, big deal. You ate food yesterday. You know, big deal. I mean, I turned water into wine. I hope you enjoyed the wedding. But what's the point of the signs? The gospel come in and says, yes, there is a power of God to overcome nature, but so what? God can do that in his sleep. God can do that without getting out of bed. It's the power of God to save mankind that displaces the counterfeit kingdom. And so the, the, the gospel of the kingdom comes in and says, you can have a Lord who will save you, which is why people believe in it. It's not just something to follow and to understand, but to believe in and to be baptized into. Worship of Jesus Christ empties out the cults. It destroys the praise of man. And it silences all claims to greatness which are not toward Christ. I'll say that one more time. Worship of Jesus Christ empties out the cults. It destroys the praise of man. And it silences every claim to greatness that is not Jesus Christ. That's the transforming power of the gospel. It has practical, tangible realities in the world. Because what, what do we see? It says they didn't just believe, but they were baptized. Again, this is part of the Great Commission. Preach the gospel... Teach them to obey and baptize them. Because what would be bad would be for the apostles to go through and preach and have people believe and then just say, good luck. But what did they do? They baptized them, which means they welcomed them into the church. They signified the death to sin that Jesus offers and the resurrection life. And baptism was a sign of inclusion in the family. It was a sign of the church receiving those people by the confession of their sin. And it was a person's public declaration that they now belong to this family. They don't belong to that old kingdom. They don't belong to that old world anymore. They now belong to Christ and, and declare his name as great. This baptism was first performed by, you may remember, John the Baptist. He baptized people for repentance but he didn't have the full gospel to say, hey, if you repent, you'll have new life. He just said, come and repent of your wickedness, you brood of vipers. He preached a, hard, preached a hard message. And there were some who went around with that message. We're going to learn about this later in Acts, that they didn't have the full gospel yet. So they were going around preaching the baptism of John. Like, repent, repent, repent. Very important. But the, the apostles would say, no, when you're baptized, 
You're baptized and you are raised in new life, resurrection life in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is transforming them. It is signifying the the death to sin and resurrection life. And the people of Samaria were experiencing this. They were experiencing it regardless of what had gone on beforehand. And when John the Baptist preached, uh, sorry, baptized Christ, he at first balked and he said, Why would, how could I baptize you? And Jesus said, for thus it is fulfilling, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It is the renewal of the gospel signified in baptism that these people embraced. And I also want you to look at Philip's preaching. What did he preach? He preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, why are those two things paired together? The kingdom of God and the name of Christ. Is that, are those two different things? Like, was there, is there a gospel of the kingdom? Then it's like, also, you need to know about Jesus. He kind of fits in there somehow. How does that work? The gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that's the context for the gospel. And I think that's something that we need to reinvigorate in our evangelism because we sometimes we'll walk up to a person in the street and say, you need to know Jesus. He died for your sin. Is that true? Yes. But our, our, our world doesn't have a category for sin. You read articles written towards young girls that say there's no wrong way to love. There's no wrong way to live. There's no wrong way to identify. There's no wrong way to think. There's no wrong way to live. There's no wrong. So when you go to somebody and say, Jesus died for your sin, they're like, what is sin? What does that mean? And they may be sincerely trying to listen to you and they have no idea what you're talking about. That's why we need to explain the kingdom of God. Because there's God and he created the world in the first place. And he created it as a kingdom. And he put men and women at the center of that kingdom to rule and reign according to what he wanted. To plant gardens and tend to them according to the beauty of his creation. To procreate and and bless the world with multiplication of families so that we could have relationship and communities and cities. All under God's authority. But then man fell and there was rebellion against God and then things went really bad. There was murder and wickedness. But then God said, I am going to fix this and I'm going to send you a man who is not going to be like the first man. He's going to be an obedient man. He's going to come and live on the earth and be an obedient one. And that man's name was Jesus. And so this Jesus was an obedient man. And when he lived a perfect life, God said, that's what I had meant for you guys. And then Jesus said, not only will I live a perfect life, but I'm going to take on the sin of all these rebels and those who put their trust in me are going to be welcomed into this kingdom. And guess what? The kingdom began with Christ and it is ever extending to full fruition. The kingdom is like a mustard seed slowly expanding through the world. The kingdom is like a tree that grows and eventually the, the, all the birds of the world take their nest and their shelter in this kingdom. But my friends, you cannot enter this kingdom unless you have the name of Jesus Christ. You will not be included in this kingdom. You will be an alien in this kingdom. You will be on the outside of this kingdom. So the kingdom of God is the context for the name of Jesus Christ. Most people only know Jesus Christ as a swear word. So we have to really think hard about the whole Bible. What does the whole Bible teach us about God and about who Christ is? And we need to tell the whole story evangelism is not always just a little card that you can hand somebody and they can figure it out. 
Sometimes we have to explain people. We have to show them a we have to show them a worldview and a whole story of God before they can understand why they need Christ. So that's what that's what Philip is preaching. And remember, he's preaching in the context where these people didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know God. This is Samaria. They liked magic. They didn't know a thing about God. It doesn't make them unworthy to hear the gospel. It just means that you sit down, you take the time to care and to love them, to show them the kingdom of God and what it's all about so that Christ makes sense. So that's how Philip preached. And we need to remember, friends, that we were those who were alien to God. We, lest we become prideful because of what God has done, need to recognize that we were those who were far from God. In Ephesians 2.17, it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Friends, that's what we were before the gospel came to us. Lest we think pridefully of ourselves. Think of how the gospel came to you. Whoever took the time like Philip to preach to you, to describe the gospel of the kingdom to you, it might have been your parents, it might have been a friend, somebody who brought you to church, but we were those who were far off. But now you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. There is no distinction. So those who believe, these Samaritans, who were, Paul says, they were, they were, alone in the world and and without hope. They were cut off from God. There was no reason for them to have any hope. Paul says, you are now fellow citizens and members of the household of God. You you are now distinguished in an equal way to anybody who has ever called on my name. You have been welcomed into the household of God. What great hope there is in the gospel. So we see the gospel advancing. We see these people baptized. Baptized. And then we see gospel purity. And what do I mean by that? Gospel purity, we see, it it, it shifts back onto Simon. He stays in focus in this story. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, I, I don't think this was super well choreographed. Like the apostles were like, okay, persecuted folks, you go down to Samaria and send us a text once you've preached and we'll come down there and do some baptizing and stuff. It was just like they just fled. They were fleeing persecution. They were fleeing death. And they ended up in Samaria and they started preaching. But when the apostles heard, when when word had traveled, hey, guess who has the gospel now? Samaria, can you believe it? They believe. I I want people to say that about Smith Falls one day. Have you heard about Smith Falls? They have the gospel again. It has taken hold. It has just spread through this town. Wouldn't that be amazing to witness that? And maybe even if we don't witness it, maybe if the generation ahead of us gets to say, can you believe the gospel is back? People are living righteously. They are caring for the poor. They're educating their children in the name of Jesus Christ. We might not be around to see it, but Lord, may we plant seeds to that end. But that's aside. So the apostles here and they come down. They sent to them Peter and John. So they elected, while Peter and John were, were quite prominent, they had done a lot of the public speaking. They had gone before the magistrate. They had gone before the authorities and defended the name of God and the, and the gospel preaching. So they were used to this kind of representative work. They were two of the prominent disciples 
uh, that Jesus kept closest to himself. Um, and, and, and they were probably the, the most familiar with, with Christ and, and his words and personality. Although all 12 apostles were, were equally called to that, these ones were closer. And so they come. This is a common pattern in the book of Acts where when the gospel reaches a new place, apostles have to come and lay hands on so that the spirit falls. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to be unclear about this, and I don't want to pick on a pet theology, but many take this to say, well, we can basically lay hands on people so that the Spirit falls on them. And then, like, that's what the Bible commands us to do. But if we do that, we're guilty of exactly what Simon says. I want this power so that when I lay hands on people, I can make the Spirit fall. The, God, the, the book of Acts doesn't demand that doesn't prescribe that what's happening is that when the gospel goes to a new place samaria here it's new territory in order to have unity in the church in order for the church that had previously existed to welcome the new church there was there was a sort of this literal apostolic line to say okay so and so heard the gospel let's go over here so that we apostles can say the holy spirit came and fell on these folks just like it fell on you So treat them as no different because we saw it here and we saw it there. So Christ used these apostles to to build and maintain unity in that first century church, especially when ethnic and geographic tensions were very high. The early church had every reason to discount people of other ethnicities or backgrounds and say, your faith can't be real. We're Okay, so you, yeah, that's cute. You want to be a Christian? Well, you can have your own little sub-Christianity because we're the Jews who are Christians. We really know. And the apostolic laying on of hands that the Spirit would fall is to say, like we just read in Ephesians 2, you are one in Christ. They are fellow citizens with you. And so that's a very important ministry of the apostles in the first century. Notice it doesn't say when, when certain folks in Samaria received the gospel. It says that when Samaria receive the gospel. So it wasn't just that these individuals needed the Holy Spirit to fall. It was that this region now had the gospel and the apostles were there to affirm and to connect it to the church that had previously existed. Remember that? Actually, coming to mind, there's that parable where Jesus hires somebody in the morning. They work all day in the field. And And then late in the day, there's still more work to be done. So he goes out and he hires this vineyard owner, goes out and hires more servants and they join the field at like four o'clock in the afternoon and when quitting when dinner time comes at seven all the workers come into the field some started at 7 a.m some started at noon some started at you know 4 30 and only worked two and a half hours and then they all come to the wage table and the owner says here's a denarii for you a denarii for you a denarii for you he pays them all equally and the ones who started earliest they become indignant I'm like, that's not fair. I worked four times as long as this other guy. And he at the beginning says, did you not agree on your wages? So there's an essence in which Christ is destroying the snobbery of those who knew Christ first. Yeah, I hired you first. You worked longer. So what? I saved these people. I love them. You don't get to be indignant over them or hold something over them. So these folks who received the gospel later we're not inferior or second-class citizens in the gospel. They were welcomed in and made part of the body of Christ. Friends, that's how we need to treat the lost world. When you belong to Christ, you are one of us. You are with us. We are together. We care for you. 
But this event captures Simon's attention. Simon's looking on. He's like, that's cool. Just lays hand on them and the spear falls. And maybe they spoke in tongues again, just like Acts chapter 2, where the gospel is being spoken. The works of God are being spoken in other languages to demonstrate that God's mercy is going out to every nation. Simon says, I want to do that. He loved performing signs and wonders. Now we're told that he believed and was baptized. So this might rattle our theological categories a little bit here. And I just want to speak to where the scriptures speak. I think that he essentially exhibited a very shallow belief. Like all, basically all of his followers believed in the gospel. So in some way you think, how is he going to keep his followers? Well, he should probably identify with them. Because he doesn't want to alienate his audience. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I wonder if that had something to do with it. And so he says, I, you know, like the democratic debate last night, it's like, check who's putting their hands up. And I agree. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be the one standing saying my own thing. But imagine the authority and the power that he would have gained if he had gained this power in his vocation. He sees the power of the divine, the living God fall on them. And he says, give me this power. That's not a confession of a Christian. (laughs) Like... That is not a Christian statement. Give me this power. Okay. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that one. Remember when the disciples said, Lord, do you want us to cast fire down on them? No, we're good. Okay. Certain things do not belong to every person. The apostles were uniquely commissioned and gifted for these apostles. Remember, they suffered. They gave up everything to follow Christ. They're not just Joe Schmoes who just believed the gospel and he was like, oh, you're good. Why don't you go? No, these were dedicated to the gospel and commissioned by Christ himself. And Simon says, give me this power. Oh, man. Peter unloads on him. This is gospel purity. The gospel is not compromised. The gospel is not mixed or polluted by this kind of ambitious sinner. I mean, they could have thought, this guy has a great following in town. He'd be a great evangelist. Don't you think, like, if he got saved, this town would skyrocket. He's already got the following. Let's just commission him. What does Peter say? He offered them money, right? He's got lots of it. He's been a showman for years. Just, I'll buy this off you guys. I want to take this. Like, show me your tricks. I want to do this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered the money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Imagine what I could do with this, guys. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Remember, these are folks who saw the betrayal of Christ, who saw him suffer and die on the cross. They know the gift of God is not purchased with money. And I wonder if in some way they thought back to Judas, who sold Christ for money. They would not be caught dead doing that. And so they're furious at him. I I mean, I don't mean personally furious, but they are so passionate about the gospel you have neither part nor lot in this matter, meaning you, do, you have no clue. You don't, you've not been listening to us at all. It is not about money or power or tricks. You have the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. These are both Old Testament 
figures of speech. Isaiah 58 talks about the bonds of sin, the bonds of iniquity, which only the Lord can release. No human has the ability to break the bonds of sin, which, which control us. Without Christ, we are bound in sin, literally with straps of like leather. Only God can release those, which is why Peter gives him the warning. You need to go to God. God needs to release you from your sin. But the gall of bitterness, what is that? I want to read that for you quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you don't have time to turn there, write it in your notes because this is a very powerful description. This is a powerful imagery that Peter is drawing out to describe him. This is a covenant renewal between God and his people in Moab. Verse 16 in in chapter 29 says, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. In other words, you passed through the nations that had idols. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which are among them. Beware, lest there be any among you, a man or a woman or clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to serve idols of those nations. Beware, lest there be any of you a root bearing the poisonous and bitter fruits. That's the gall of bitterness there. It's the bitter, poisonous fruit that is born from a heart that is turning from God. This is what Peter is saying about Simon. You've heard the gospel, and yet you are still turning to worship idols. You still want power. You still want self-adulation. You still want fame. One who hears, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What a somber warning. One who blesses himself, saying, I've heard... And I'll be safe. I'm safe from God's judgment, even though I'm walking in the stubbornness of my heart. That's what Peter is warning Simon about now. You are blessing yourself saying, oh, I've heard the gospel. I'm going to go on living my self-promoting, self-exalting lifestyle where I'm playing with tricks and exerting power over the people. Not so. God is not mocked. The gospel does not facilitate or accommodate sin or the exaltation of people it destroys and mortifies it it is utterly gutting in its power over humanity for those who what's the word repent verse 22 repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you don't you see how it's the intention of the heart that is exposed he wanted power. He may have believed the gospel on a superficial level, but he still wanted to do his own thing. God comes down hard on that. If you know Christ and you are walking with him, you cannot say, I'm safe, so I'm going to walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. Peter says, repent of that. Turn, be freed from the bonds of your sin, the things that control and bind you so that you may be one with God. And then Simon, clearly no connection to God, no personal relationship with him, says, pray for me that the Lord, that nothing bad will happen to me. All he's thinking about is himself. Don't let that bad stuff happen to me. He's just so wrapped up in his world, in his, in his fame, in his vocation, he just doesn't see it. 
He says, give me the power. And then he says, you're going to be judged for your sin. And he says, oh, don't let that happen, Peter. It's so sad to see somebody come to a shallow understanding of the gospel and not to fully embrace the forgiveness of Christ. See, one who lives in past sin, no matter how bad it is, when they come to know Christ, they are free. They're not trembling like this. They're not saying, oh, pray, pray that God doesn't judge me. They're free. They're like, I can't believe God freed me from that. He forgave me. And this guy, Simon, just doesn't understand. He has not met Christ on the hill of Calvary. He has not seen his sin. We just sang it this morning. Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. We can freely sing that and sing, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers because we know we're forgiven. Why else, would, why else would we sing, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder? Because in singing that, we are not condemned for our sin. By confessing that it was our sin, we are not condemned for it. This is the beauty of the gospel, my friends. It is not a fearful thing to acknowledge your sin before God because he provided cleansing power. He provided a means of forgiving you. So it is not a fearful thing to confess our sin before God so this harsh rebuke is how Peter and the apostles maintain the purity of God's good news for humanity. It is not good news if the power of the gospel can be bought with money. Why? Because poor people don't have money. It's that simple. It's not good news for everybody if the rich can make advances in the gospel and the poor cannot. In fact, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Money often becomes a hindrance because the rich young ruler again said, I cannot leave behind my wealth. I'll follow your law, Jesus, but I can't leave behind my wealth. And Jesus said, then you cannot follow me. Which is why as Christians, we should be as generous as we can be. Get rid of as much as you can on others. Take care of your family, take care of your needs, but your money is not going to get you further in the kingdom. But money placed in God's hands can be multiplied for good. Anyway, that's not my point. Here's my conclusion. The church's mission, in the church's mission, we're going to encounter all kinds of cultural strongholds that work against and are counter to the gospel. Christians don't need to be offended by the fact that the world is not neutral. We shouldn't be surprised or upset like the early church. Just, of course... Of course, the gospel comes in contrast with man's expression of himself. Of course it does. That's how we know the gospel is being preached in its purity. If we go out and we're not troubled by anything, then what application does the gospel have? There are cultural, human strongholds that work against Christ and his lordship. And where we find it, here's what we do. We demonstrate the kingdom alternative. So where does, the, where does the rubber meet the road on that? Well, where we see sexuality broken and distorted and families disintegrating, what do we do? We demonstrate marriage and faithfulness. And I don't just mean you all have to get married. I mean we demonstrate and uphold marriage. We demonstrate that it is the, that it is the, 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 the intended creational order for mankind. We stay together. We work out our differences. We forgive each other. We prioritize the family and sexual faithfulness in a culture that totally despises it. That's how we provide the gospel alternative. That doesn't mean your family is the gospel. It means that we manifest and we, in some way, uh, demonstrate the gospel in, in a small way. 
where there are the sick and the poor, and pardon me if this steps on your political toes, but I think in, in large matter, the, the church's budget for building church buildings went way up when we stopped having to care for the poor. The government has done a lot to help people in a social safety net, to help them you know, between jobs. I've been a beneficiary of that. I, I'm not discrediting the good that the government has tried to do, but what the church needs to do is when we see the sick and the poor, we need to step in with charity. We don't say go to the government shop if you're struggling. If somebody comes to us in need of help, we say we care for you. I hope one day the government has so much money they have nothing to spend it on because the church is doing all the work. Oh, would God return that as a legacy to our churches, to our nation, that the church would be known for caring for the sick and bringing in the orphan. And It's hard. I, I don't know how it all works out. It's difficult. It's expensive. It's messy. But like, let's pray about how we can apply that and how we can, how we can say to the government, hey, you, do a, you put people in jail who are bad and, and have good laws and pave the roads. We'll take care of the sick. Wouldn't that be so cool if they just had nothing to do because the church was doing all that? And where the occult is present, and my friends, this is not, this is not a what if. I said this is happening on the corner of Harriet and Wilson in Perth, an occult shop. What do you do about that? Do you go throw eggs at her sign or throw a milkshake at her? No. Where the occult is present, we provide prayer, communication with the living God, and we provide prophetic knowledge from the word of God. We share the word of God. We tell them about the destiny of humanity. We tell them about the kingdom. We tell them about creation. We tell them things they could have never known if they hadn't opened a Bible. Prophetic knowledge, divine power, rooted in the living God, not in the demonic. So we show people the gospel alternative to their ways of rebelling against God. We tear down every lofty thought that is raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Yet in all of this, the church must not have an over-realized power. There's always going to be Simons. The church is not going to have unending forward progress and transformation, even if we're the most faithful we could possibly be, because it's not going to be the way it should be until Christ comes back fully. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try or quit or be discouraged. There's going to be people who don't believe or who don't follow or who don't turn. It doesn't mean we don't go forward in mission and preaching and having compassion on the on the culture that we're in. And again, they were there by accident. They fled there because they were killing people in Jerusalem, so they went somewhere else. God will use you where you are and where you're going. 